Hey friends, Nels here. Welcome to the Journey Church Podcast. Today we're in a message series called Christianity Light. Oftentimes, I find that my faith can be watered down or really just not going anywhere. But today we're exploring what it looks like to move into the transformed life that Christ intends for us. And I would invite you to tune in. Hi Journey, good evening. My name is Brandon Edwards and I'm one of the pastors around here. And this is the first week of our new series, Christianity Light. It's about moving beyond a shallow, lukewarm faith and into a deeper, transformed life that Christ calls us to. And I want to start out by talking about two things, the American dream and following Christ. The American dream is this incredible idea that we can come from any class, any social class, any background, and through hard work, commitment, determination, and the right amount of risk, we can do better than our parents. One of my college friends is a second-generation American. His parents were immigrants. They came over. They started a business. They worked hard. They were successful, and they did well. And now their son, he went to college, my friend, and now he's a dentist. Classic American dream. But there are no guarantees. That's why it's called the American dream, not American reality for everyone. And it's the pursuit of happiness, not necessarily the obtaining of happiness. And then you compare that to what Jesus said. He said that I came so that you might have life and have it to the full. See, God is this great gift giver. He gives us everything that we have and our very lives, our very breath, everything we possess, he gives us and is ultimately his. And I think there's an overlap between this concept of the American dream, and having a life that Christ called us to. We're pursuing joy in our faith, but there's also a way that those don't go together. See, the shadow mission of the American dream and pursuing happiness is greed and selfishness. In fact, for many, greed is the motivating factor for the pursuit of happiness. So much more motivating than altruism. And that hit me like a ton of bricks in college. In college, I started out pre-med. Both my parents are scientists. I like science and I really liked working with people. And so it made sense to me. And I loved what I was learning and I did well. But I also started doing ministry and I realized that I love ministry more than possibly being a doctor. And so I ended up switching majors to business administration because I come from a pretty entrepreneurial family. And I encountered something in business school that I wasn't prepared for, greed. It was built into the curriculum. Greed looks like a lot of things in the US. And basically, it's taking good things like the American dream, the pursuit of happiness, social equality, and turning it into an idol. It looks like this. A really awesome house. A bigger house. A really nice car. A nicer car, a newer car. Personal beauty. Youth. Retirement. Inheritance. And vacations. Are there any, is there anything wrong with these? No. These are gifts from God. He loves us. He's generous. He's the great giver of gifts. But can they be idols? 
definitely. It happens all the time, every day. But life is about pursuing Christ and challenging ourselves to love and live for Christ, to love sacrificially, to carry our cross. So how do we reconcile this American dream with Christ's call to discipleship? Jesus describes it like this in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. This guy is extreme. He is 100%. He's 110%. He's living in response to the kingdom and how great God is. There's no middle ground, no lukewarm living, no, nothing but red hot love of God following hard after God. To him, it's worth everything. He sold the farm to buy a new farm. But it's hard to be red hot in love with God all the time. Or maybe we feel excited about God at first. And then maybe things die down for us. In America, we might have heard these statistics that we, compared to the rest of the world, are really rich. The average person, over 54% of the world, lives on $2 or less a day. So if you make $2,000 a month, you make 50 times what the average person in the world does. If you make $4,000 a month, you make 100 times what the average person in the world does. Or how about this question? What's more messed up? That we have so much compared to everyone else or that we don't think we're rich? Or in any given day, we might flippantly call ourselves broke or poor. We are neither of those things. We are rich here in America. So how do we live a life of faith if we really don't depend on God for our housing and for food? This morning, were you worried about getting food? Were you worried about a place to sleep tonight? Now, some people in America do have that. But most of us don't feel needy like the average human on the planet. How do we keep from settling for a lukewarm faith that doesn't involve God in our day-to-day life. Jesus said, I came so that you may have life and have it to the full. And the example of a full life requires faith. And he gives us this example of faith in the parable of the good soil. Let's read that together. Buckle in. One day, Jesus told a story in the form of a parable of a large crowd, and he gathered that had gathered from many towns near him. A farmer went out to plant his seed. As he scattered it across his field, some seed fell on the footpath where it was stepped on and birds ate it. Other seed fell among the rocks. It began to grow, but the plant soon wilted and died for lack of moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns and grew up with it and choked out the tender plants. And still other seed fell on fertile soil. This seed that fell on fertile soil produced a crop that was 100 times as much as had been planted. And when he said this, he called out, anyone with ears should listen and understand. His disciples asked him, what does this parable mean? And he replied, you are permitted to understand the secrets of the kingdom of God, but I use parables to teach others so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. When they look, they won't really see, and when they hear, they won't understand. And then Jesus does something he doesn't always do. He says to the disciples, this is the meaning of the parable. 
The seed is God's word. The seeds that fell on the footpath represent those who hear the message only to have the devil come and take it away from their hearts and prevent them from believing and being saved. So the devil stomps on it. The seeds on the rocky soil represent those who hear the message and receive it with joy. But since they don't have deep roots, they believe for a while, then they fall away when they face temptation, when they're tempted. The seeds that fell among the thorns represent those who hear the message, but all too quickly, the message is crowded out by the cares and riches and pleasures of this life. And so they never grow into maturity. And the seeds that fell on good soil represent honest, good-hearted people who hear God's word, cling to it, and patiently produce a huge harvest. We want to be the good soil. We want to have a good dirt kind of faith. God created us. He came down to be with us so that we can live life to the full. And that full life requires faith, living out faith. The philosopher Pascal said that faith is like gambling. A disciple bets their whole life, all their action, all their work on the resurrected Jesus. Paul said, we are to be pitied above all else if the resurrection isn't true. We are gambling our lives on the resurrection. Faith is a risk. Faith is doing something with the life God gave you and letting God worry about the results. Two of the best examples of faith are Abraham and Jesus. And you might be thinking, why is Jesus a great example of faith? He knows the father, he's the son. Well, hold on, you'll, you'll see soon. We're not called to hear God's promise and feel good about it. We're called to hear God's promise and respond like Abraham did. We act. God said something and he went. This is why missional communities can be so great because missional communities are about being together and then going out and acting in the ministry, loving our neighbors. Missional communities are faith in action, modeled after the early church, the Acts 2 community. And that's something I never experienced when we just did small groups in the past. So we're really excited about those. It's important to realize that having faith, having faith isn't our way to convince God to love us. We're not earning our salvation with our action. We're not earning our salvation or God's love with our faith. And we're not loving God because of what he does for us or the inheritance or the promises that God promises us. We love God because of who God is, his character, and because he first loved us. I think this is a helpful illustration. Imagine how awful it would feel if your child said to you, I don't really love you and I don't really want your love but I'd like my allowance, please. Conversely, what would a, a beautiful gift be? How awesome would it be to have them look you in the eye and say, I love you, not your beauty, your money, your family, or your car, just you. Can you say, I love you to God? Or our love for him always comes out of his love for us. That's how we find that love for God. Faith is a radical response to God's love. Faith and love aren't a sacrifice to offer up to God to make him 
love us. And that's why Christ is a great example of faith. Christ shows us that faith and sacrifice is a response to God's love. Because Jesus didn't begin his ministry and do three years and then get baptized. What happened? Jesus got baptized by John the Baptist. And as he was coming out of the water, he saw the Holy Spirit come down like a dove. And he said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. I love him. My son whom I love, my beloved son. And then Jesus did three years of ministry. He didn't do three years of ministry and say, I am really proud of you. I love you now. Jesus' ministry was a response to the love he already knew he had from God. And now we have a call on our lives to live in that love and respond to that love with our lives. Action. Responding to God's love. It's an essential part of faith. What does the good soil look like? What is that kind of faith? Let's look back at the parable of the sower. Jesus explained that the seed is the truth, the word of God. When the seed is flung into the path, it's heard but quickly stolen away. It's stomped on. When the seed is tossed onto the rocks, no roots take hold. There's an appearance of depth and growth because it's good soil, but it's only surface level. When the seed is spread among the thorns, it's received but soon suffocated by life's worries, riches, and pleasures. But when the seed is sown in good soil, it grows, it takes root, it produces fruit. Do you think you're good soil? Do you think you are good soil? Matthew 7, 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Action, responding, not good feelings. I think most of us American churchgoers are the soil with thorns that chokes the seeds because of the thorns. Thorns are anything that distract us from God. When we want God and we want a bunch of other stuff, then that means we have thorns in our soil. A relationship with God simply can't grow when money, sin, activities, favorite sports teams, addictions, or commitments are just piled on top of it. Most of us have too much in our lives. And David Getz writes, too much of the good life ends up being toxic. It deforms our spirituality. Too much of the good life is toxic for us and deforms us spiritually. A lot of good things, a lot of things are good by themselves, but altogether, it keeps us from living a healthy, fruitful life. It's just too much. One pastor says it this way, do not assume you are the good soil. Has your relationship with God actually changed the way you live? Do you see evidence of God's kingdom in your life? Or are you choking it out slowly, spending too much time, energy, money, and thoughts on this world? Are you satisfied being godly enough? Godly enough to get yourself into heaven? Or, or to look good in comparison to others? Or can you say with Paul that you want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sh and sharing of his sufferings and becoming him in death? That's Philippians 3.10.
Now, wouldn't it be nice if that verse just ended that you want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection? And it kind of skipped the sufferings and becoming like him in death part. That way we could have this appealing, popular Jesus. Jesus who didn't suffer or question God. Some theologians have said that American Christianity is often a nice marriage, children who don't swear, and good church attendance. Taking the words of Christ literally and seriously is rarely considered. That's for the radicals, for unbalanced people, the extremists, people who are overboard. Most of us want a balanced life that we can control, and it's safe. It doesn't involve suffering. I don't like that. And we get upset at God, or our spouse gets upset when we don't get what we want. Would you describe yourself as totally in love with Jesus? Or do the words half-hearted or lukewarm or partially committed? Partially committed. I encourage you to look at your life, not the one that you will be one of these days, but the life you're living right now. Because lukewarm Christian is an oxymoron. It doesn't exist. There's no such thing. To put it plainly, churchgoers who are lukewarm aren't Christian. They are not following Christ. We will not see them in heaven. Jesus talks about it in Revelation 3, 15 through 18. He's talking to the church at Laodicea, and they are on his naughty list. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. From this description, if you didn't know Laodicea, you would think there are a bunch of naked people that are blind, but they're actually an affluent church. They make colored clothing, some of the most amazing colored clothing in the area, and so they've made a lot of money on that. They're well known for that. They also make this salve, this medicinal salve that's good for the eyes. And Jesus says, you should buy gold from me that's been refined in the fire, not the money you have. You should get some white clothes from me to cover your shameful nakedness, spiritual nakedness. And you should get salve for your eyes from me because you are blind. That's what he's saying to Laodicea. Also, the whole lukewarm thing is because they didn't have any natural water supply. So five or six miles away is Hierapolis and they piped the water in from an aqueduct. And the water could be heated, but it came in lukewarm. And this affluent town, Laodicea, did not like it. They're constantly complaining about it. So when he compares them to lukewarm, they, they completely understand because it's probably one of the things they hate the most about their town is this lukewarm, gross water from an aqueduct, which is open. Six miles, how about six miles of open water that you have to drink every day? The passage is where our modern understanding of lukewarm Christian comes from. Jesus is saying, 
that because they're lukewarm, he's going to spit them out of his mouth. There's no gentle rendering of that word in the Greek. It's actually the Greek word ameo, which is usually translated vomit. But that seems to be too gross for most translators, and so they use the word spit. And it gets the point across. And it's the only time it's used in the New Testament. It means gagging, retching, hurling. Many people read this passage and assume that Jesus is speaking to saved people. But why? Why do people think that? When you read this passage, do you conclude that to be spit out of Jesus' mouth means you're being spit into the kingdom? That you're a part of his kingdom? When it comes to being hot rather than lukewarm, I really like the example of the Marines. I work out in the mornings and there's a guy that works out with me who's a Marine. And you don't even have to talk to him. You know he's a Marine. (laughs) And I've always been impressed with my friends. Some of my best friends serve in the armed forces and I'm really grateful for them. But Marines are really committed And it never entered my mind to join the Marines when I was growing up. Because if you join, they have to do whatever, you have to do whatever they tell you. They own you. And somehow when we hear Paul say that we've been bought with a price, that Jesus owns us, we don't see the crossover in that kind of thinking. We don't realize when we join Christianity It's like the Marines. Jesus didn't say that if you want to follow him, you could do it in a lukewarm manner. He said, take up your cross and follow me. He also said in Luke 14, 31 through 33, suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those who do not give up everything, you have, those who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just join the Marine? We could just all join the Marines. But we could kind of pick and choose which orders to follow. That'd be fun. We could just all join the Marines. Would that be fun? No, that would not be the Marines. That'd be like the Boy Scouts. I was in the Boy Scouts, and you get a little patch, and you can pick which patches you want to do. Same with Girl Scouts. Jesus asks for everything, but we try to give him less. Right after that, Jesus says, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's thrown out. It's kind of a low blow from Jesus on that one. He's saying that if you lose your saltiness, you are not even fit for manure. It's not a cute little analogy. He is addressing those who aren't willing to give everything, who won't follow him all the way. He's saying lukewarm, half-hearted faith is useless that it sickens our souls. He's saying that it's the kind of salt, it's not even fit for a manure pile. And how about you? I've spent a lot of time around manure, probably many of you have. And to say that I'm not even good enough 
for manure is pretty low. Jesus' intention of this parable was to compare the only good soil to the ones that were not legitimate alternatives. Only the good soil works. Not the rocks, not the path, not the thorns. Now, hold on here because Brandon, you're probably thinking, Brandon, I, I am not perfect. And, and that's true. Everyone here, everyone in the whole world, the strongest Christ follower has lukewarm elements in their lives. We have lukewarm practices in our lives. Faith is a journey. That's why we called it Journey Church when we planted it. And our lukewarm elements in our lives and those practices are where we meet God's extravagant grace. The scripture demonstrates clearly that there's room for failure, there's room for sin in our pursuit of God because his mercies are new every morning. His grace is sufficient. Jesus died for us. I'm not saying that when you mess up, it means you were never really a genuine Christian. I'm not saying that. If that were true, no one could follow Christ. I'm talking about choosing a posture of obedience and surrender with your life, where a person perpetually moves and makes choices to follow Christ. That's what we are about. From other references in Scripture, in Colossians 2, we find out that Laodicea appears to have been a healthy and legitimate church back in Colossians 2. That was about 25 years before Revelation. But something happened... And by the time we see in Revelation, Laodicean hearts apparently didn't belong to God anymore. Despite the fact that they were an active church, they were meeting, having this letter about spit and manure read to them. Their church was prospering. They didn't seem to be experiencing any of the Roman persecution. They were comfortable and proud. Does that sound familiar? Mark Buchanan writes, physical sickness, we usually defy. We fight physical sickness. But soul sickness, we often resign ourselves to. The people in Laodicea didn't realize or acknowledge that their souls were sick, that they were lukewarm and desperately in need of what Christ offered. Tim Kizier said, our greatest fear as individuals and as a church should not be of failure. Our greatest fear should be of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. God's definition of what matters is pretty straightforward. He measures our lives by how we sacrificially love. Are we in love with God or just his stuff? Are we in love with God or just what we get from him? Heaven? Treasures in heaven? Are you challenging yourself spiritually? As you go into the summer, are you willing to be challenged spiritually? Look at your possessions, your time, your money, your talents, your gifts, your abilities. How can you leverage what God has given you, what you have, to love others sacrificially? Giving our time and our money and our possessions challenges us to live generously, like Christ. It constantly makes us ask the question, what am I doing this for? I'm being generous. Is this for me 
or, or can I do something for others, this thing that I have? Are you challenging yourself this summer? What would your life look like if you made a change and oriented your life in just one way, one new way around Christ? What's the next step for you? What if the good soil is daily recognizing that we want to respond to the love of Christ? First, you've got to hear that God loves you. This is the foundation. The example of Christ. God saying, you're my beloved. He hadn't even done anything yet. God loves you so much that he came down to be with us through Christ in our pain, in our struggle, in our joys, our sorrows. And then after the resurrection, he decided to stay with us through the Holy Spirit, who's our partner. The Holy Spirit is our partner. Holy Spirit is constantly with us, holding everything together. I love the example of compost for good soil. When you think of good soil, compost is pretty awesome. It's been said that God is a good composter of our lives. God plops down into our lives all this stuff that seems useless to us. Or maybe we don't like it, but it can become life if we keep composting it. No scrap of a story or clipping of a hurt is this nebulous or abstract thing in God's eyes. Everything in life Pain, struggles, stories, knowledge, and everything is the banana peels, the eggshells, and the grass clippings, and manure that God can turn into good soil. One of my favorite definitions of faith is that faith is accepting that there's something beneath everything, even if it looks dead. A Christian believes that that something, that foundation of everything, is Jesus. That Jesus is the center of everything, that he holds everything together. In the Bible, Jesus is the center of everything. In the manger, he was surrounded by animals and humans and kings and shepherds, men and women, angels and seraphim, and God, lots of people. There's no other place in history where all of those entities come together in harmony. He was between two criminals on the cross in the center. And in Revelation, at the end, in the new heaven and the new earth, Jesus is described in the city. There's no sun because Jesus is lighting the world. The lamb who was slain is sitting in the center of New Jerusalem as bright as the sun. His glory lighting the whole world. Faith in Jesus is accepting that Jesus is at the center of everything. Disbelieving is believing that you yourself are the center of the universe. Dying with Jesus frees us from our self-focused life. It frees us from ourselves and our, limited, and our, and our limitations. Now, dying for Christ, we see that Christianity is obsessed with death. Christianity is a religion that seeks real life, real humanity. And the truth is that death is a big part of our lives. We think about death. We know people who die. We wonder what happens after death, and we're afraid of death. Death is not only something we can't escape, but it's also something we have to learn to embrace. 
a lot of death in our world seems meaningless. But Jesus' death actually accomplished something, and it changed the world, and it's still changing it. From death, we find the redemption of God. One of my friends from school had a friend who was killed in a car accident. She was hit by a truck on a foggy day while making a left-hand turn. And she was a good person, the kindest you've ever met. She loved Jesus very much. The funeral was incredible. Her legacy, the blessing she was in life, was still bearing fruit. Her brother stood up and talked about his sister. He remembered how loving she was, how we all knew of her affection for all of us. And he said how she would want us all to love each other. He reminded us how short life is. And then he said his sister would want us all to get along and love each other because life is short. He told us that if we loved her, we would find anybody in the room after the service who had hurt us or whom we had hurt, hug them and reconcile. Then after the funeral, all these people stood in the back crying and hugging and reconciling. People who hadn't talked in years This loving woman's death was redemptive in that way. Jesus' death is just like that. Good comes from it. It isn't a waste. I think when the church is at its best, the church is like a funeral of people who learn to love each other because the one who died, that was how he wanted it. One thing about being a pastor is I attend a lot of weddings and funerals. And it constantly reminds me of the importance of what I'm doing in life and why I'm doing it. That life is short and it can get taken from us or someone I love at any moment tomorrow on the drive home. As Christians, we don't move on from death. We carry it with us in the form of a cross. We let it drive us. The death of others reminds us of Jesus. It points to Jesus, his ultimate act of love, his sacrificial death on the cross. So why are we calling this series Christianity Light? Well, I've read books on survival, and one consistent trait in survivors is that survivors have the ability to utilize humor to survive. So at Journey, we use humor to get our own attention and the attention of people that we love and to point to a very real spiritual problem. The problem is that we often sell out. We don't make Jesus the center of our life and our faith. One definition of faith is to believe in Christ's resurrection, which means we're always trying to reenact the resurrection every day. Martin Luther said that you should remember your baptism every morning when you wash your face. To relive it daily, to find it, to be it, to live the resurrection life, to turn shame into grace, to turn ashes into beauty. What if we made Jesus the center of our life? What if we made being a disciple of Christ, loving and giving sacrificially the center of our life? We remember Christ and we learn to live so that Christ is the center. To have forgiveness in spite of 
the hurt we've endured and let his love reign in our lives to turn death into beauty, to turn dirt, good soil, the compost of our lives into life. You can set your things aside. God, we, we thank you for this life that you've called us to and this example of love in your son that reveals for us the mystery that you loved us first, that you love us before we do anything. And God, we thank you so much for that example of Christ and his presence in our lives. And maybe this is the first time that you have considered or maybe you made a decision tonight when you were worshiping or hearing about Jesus being the center and you wanna make Jesus the center of your life. That tonight's the night. And God, I pray for people now not only that we would make Jesus the center of our life, but that we might commit our lives to you. If you wanna do that with me now, you can pray this prayer along with me. God, I wanna invite you into my life. I've been holding you away. I've been choosing other things instead of you and I wanna put you at the center I recognize that you are at the center. And God, I ask that you would come and be with me. And like you promised, if, if we do your will, you would make your home in us. And I want you with me, God, to know that I'm your beloved child. God, for everyone in this room and for everyone watching online. And later on, I pray that you would move and motivate us with whatever you need to, God, in our lives to bring us closer to you and to realize that you're the center of everything. We thank you for all that you've done, all that you've shown us and revealed to us through your son. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.